0: Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation.
1: From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory.
2: Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Ed Ayers. And I'm Brian Bellow. Now, the turn of a year is always a time for looking back,
3: As well as looking forward. Yeah, you know, it's hard to believe, given how young we look, Ed. (laughs) But in 2018, Backstory marked its 10th anniversary on the air. Wow. So in this special show, we're going to take a brief look back and a
2: major look forward. Now, when Backstory began, it wasn't even called Backstory. Brian, our friend Peter Onuf, and I were, embarrassingly enough... Go ahead, say it, Ed. ...the history guys.
4: The History Guys is a production of VFH Radio with the essential support of the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Virginia. It's the
5: History Guys.
2: (laughs) Yep, that's us, the History Guys. Hi everybody, I'm Ed. I'm Brian. And I'm Peter. Give us a call, folks. 877-451-5098. We tried out lots of different theme music. Uh, Some of it worked. Uh, Some of it, not so much. Now, in those early days, we took calls from listeners who had historical queries for us to answer. That's right. But remember to ask us
3: about U.S. history. Call us about something we actually know, or at least we think we know. Over the years on Backstory, some things have fallen by the wayside and been replaced by new things. When Peter Oniff retired, Ed and I were joined by two wonderful new colleagues, Joanne Freeman and Nathan Connolly. But even though backstory has evolved, one thing has remained constant. Our devotion to the discipline of history. No, no, it's our bad jokes. Uh, Well, I can't blow bubbles, I can't
0: skate, I can't swim, but I can do history. (laughs) Us not know the answer to a question. Hmm, Ed, you gotta be kidding kidding around with
2: history that is
3: what is your fondest memory from the early days of backstory
2: well i remember the supernova that gave birth to backstory andrew Wyndham, who was our godfather for the first years of the pro who really imagined it and who helped it succeed came up to peter me and said hey have you guys ever thought of doing a radio show about history kind of like car talk and peter said now there's two problems with that one, history's not funny, and two, we're not funny. <laughs> <laughs> then we immediately said, hmm, well, if we did do that, we've got to have our friend Brian. We need someone else who isn't funny. Yeah, well, Exactly. <laughs> Somebody who is exactly as funny as we are, which is a low standard. Then I remember coming into this very studio and kind of looking at each other and <laughs> thinking, hey, okay, now what do we do? Well, Ed, speaking of funny
3: as I recall, yeah. when Andrew pitched this idea to you, yeah. both you guys just laughed. It's, a, yeah. it's the most ridiculous thing. And I remember you pitching it to me and asking if I'd join you. Yeah. And I just laughed. And we both said, who would want to listen to a bunch of historians for an hour? Especially
2: if we weren't talking really about mufflers and brake jobs, you know, things like that. Uh, so, Well, there's another memory for you. <laughs> We were not allowed I know. to mention
3: that show, very popular on public radio, about automobiles.
2: I know. It, 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 it was, was banned. It was forbidden, as was the word historiography. But I figure <laughs> after 10 years, you and I can say whatever the hell we want to say. That's right. <laughs> but yeah, you're right, because it was seen as sort of de classe, and also... <laughs> deep comparative disadvantage to compare ourselves to one of the most popular shows on radio at the time. But it didn't take long for us to realize this is not going to be like car talk. We do have a kind of expertise that people might be curious about, and we'll share it. That's what was in common. And we're not related, but we were good friends and decided we would embark on this adventure on our own and just take it wherever it went. And one thing I do remember about the early
3: days is that camaraderie seemed to come through to our listeners, if
2: I can use the word plural. Uh, <laughs> and, and I'm sure all our spouses <laughs> were listening to the show you know, talking about Collins remind us is that we originally a radio show. Uh, our history, history Hotline it, was one of our many hotline, names. It was. and matter of fact, you know, it was very heartening early on. Some radio stations in Virginia in particular sort of took a leap of faith with us. I especially remember WMRA in Harrisonburg yep. in, in the Shenandoah Valley. Now, this actually sounds pretty good. We'll run it. And people liked it
3: well enough. And to get ready for the big time we auditioned with live radio. Do you remember that? I'm trying to forget it. Specifically, Ed, we're on a call-in show. I think it was Norfolk Radio Station. And a caller called in with a very understandable question. He wanted to know if William & Mary, the university, was founded on Pirate's Booty. And, And all three of us are sitting around the table, and we're each
2: pointing at the other person to answer it. So we never did answer that question, but we did come up with another question. What would be a better organizing principle for a radio show rather than a (laughs) call? And we decided that, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to come up with a theme each week. Um, Actually, originally it was each month because it was too much work to imagine doing this every week. And back then they didn't have weeks. Those were only (laughs) invented several years ago. But then the idea was, you know, okay, if we did have a theme, what would hold it together? Now, people will remember this because somebody mentioned it to me last week. People often say, hey, I really liked you on the radio. And that's often it's older listeners who don't really know about podcasts. They kind of wonder where we went. And one said, you know, I really love your show. I liked it when you did the different centuries. I mean, the original idea was that Peter was... 18th and 17th and 16th centuries. I was 19th and guy. you were 20th. Tw- yeah, guy, exactly. And that was the the idea. We weren't brothers, but we were dividing things up. By we time. all
3: fought over the 21st century.
2: Yeah, that's right. And we, you know, pretended to each have the true answers to American history, which invariably lay in our different centuries when, in fact, we quickly discovered it always was in the 19th century. But (laughs) I I was broad-spirited and allowed you guys to poach on Uh, my tarot. Some things never die. So, you know, I think that actually worked for quite a few years, and it built in some narrative tension into the show, right? You know, how can we claim to have been the pivotal moment here or there? I think the thing that's made the show... So interesting for us are the guests that we've had. For sure. I don't know. It's hundreds of people now who've joined us and have shown their faith in us that (laughs) we will ask the questions that will kind of reveal the really interesting stuff that they had discovered. And you never would imagine there's that many people who've explored this many topics in American history. And I have to confess, there is one
3: thing I miss very much from the past, even though it lasted ever so briefly. Yeah. That is a segment that I invented and did the research for called Gear from Yesteryear. Oh,
2: yeah. It's coming back to me now. (laughs) Ah, the sound of the harps, that dulcet melody, reminds us that Brian, our own 20th century historian, persists in hatching puzzles to humiliate us. Oh, no. You mean it's gear from yesteryear? He's back with that? Ah, Peter, don't worry, man. You with your 18th century rationalism and me with my 19th century romanticism were more than a match for our modernist friend over here.
0: Uh, Are you kidding? Oh, well, okay. Uh, So uh,
3: take it away, Brian. Okay. You'll recall that last week I described not just one, but two pieces of gear. We actually had a double gear.
0: A double gear. Wouldn't that work better on uh,
3: car talk? Yeah, a double gear. From yesteryear? You got it, Peter. And one (laughs) item replaced the other. Now I want you to know, not to put you on the spot, guys, that literally dozens of listeners wrote in and guessed this. They thought it was easy, okay?
2: Brian, I'm glad you've kept the faith in your earlier idea. But, you know, it's a funny thing about backstory we don't really fixate on the past very much. We talk about history, but we're pretty forward-looking, really. And the one thing that's remained constant is that we'll try different strategies to connect with as broad an audience as possible with the best history possible. And, amazingly, there are other people trying to do that in their own way. (laughs) Thank goodness. And, in fact, we decided this year that we would get the Backstory Prize for Public History.
3: I'm here with our executive editor, David Stenhouse, and our researcher, Monica Blair. Uh, And it's a rare opportunity to dig into, really, the, the behind the scenes, the backstory of backstory. David, I'll start with you. We managed to survive for almost 10 years without a backstory prize. Why a backstory prize in the first place?
6: Well, I joined the show this year in Backstory's 10th year, which is a big achievement for a show to to start off as a public radio show to make that successful transition to podcast. And so one of the things I did was I sat down with my colleagues and the producers to say, how do we mark this? What do we do? And we had a lot of conversations about the best way to mark 10 years. And what we concluded out of that meeting was well, what does Backstory do well? And I think what Backstory does is great history yeah. and we communicate that with a big audience. Yes. And so then the idea came, why don't we set up a prize to recognise the people who are doing the same kind of great mm-hmm. work that we try to do? Yes. You know, who are doing great research, new groundbreaking discoveries, and are helping focus that to a wide audience outside the academy. So drawing on the strengths of the academy, but communicating to a wide world. And so, you know, it was a short short little jump to come up with the idea that we should create the Backstory Prize to mark great public history that reaches
3: a wide audience. How did you narrow it down?
6: Well, I think that was the challenge, you know, and Monica does wonderful research for us in the show week by week, and so it was a task that I kind of passed on to her and said, you know, (laughs) I would really like you to come up with a long list. And you came up with a great long list. I mean, a hundred, I think, on that one. Yeah, just
4: over a hundred entries.
3: He's looking at you, Monica. So I'm
4: Monica. I'm the researcher here at Backstory. And what I do is a lot of the research before the shows come out. So I write, you know, long 10-page preps about the directions the history is moving on a particular subject and this was really a do kind of prep for me in that I wasn't just thinking about the history of a particular subject but i was thinking about the history of public history how do we put history out into the world how do we make it seen and known and certainly I think Backstory itself is an effort at this to try and move what we learn and know outside of the classroom into people's cars and houses and gyms as they work out and listen. Wherever they're trapped. Yeah, whatever. wherever they're trapped and looking for something else to listen to. And so what I really did for this is I started thinking about What is public history? What kind of forms can it take? And so certainly podcasts were on my list, um, but I also thought about movies, museum exhibits, plays, all sorts of different kinds of ways of reaching the public in in ways that are really engaging and novel— And so then once I had a sort of broad list of categories, I started really digging into things that have been produced in the last year in that particular mode. So for instance, with museum exhibits, I I started out thinking about some big names, right? The Smithsonian exhibits, um, museums in California and Chicago and big cities. But then I also tried to capture some of the sort of smaller, more grassroots work as well. Um, And some of these exhibits get a lot of press, so they get reviewed in academic journals of public history or they get reviewed in the New York Times or the Washington Post. But some of these smaller exhibits uh, don't necessarily get that kind of press. But I think that both levels do really important work um, on the ground and in the world at large for enhancing our understanding of history and of our world today.
3: So, Monica, you got a close look at roughly 100 projects, give us a sense of the the range and which ones really stood out to you.
4: Well, the range was quite large. And so with films, you have things like Mudbound. For podcasts, you have Nikki Hemmer's A12, which spoke to me on a really personal level, being from Charlottesville and UVA. In terms of exhibits, of course, we highlighted big national projects, but I also really loved a project by the students at the University of Missouri, Kansas. Yeah, They had a public history class that made a project on the making of LGBTQ history in Kansas City. And I thought this was a wonderful example of the way that students themselves can also be producers of really great public history.
3: I agree with that and they they sure pulled off a professional product.
4: They really did and they had a traveling exhibit and a great website that you can check out yourself.
3: Earlier this year, all of us Backstory hosts sat down with a long, and I mean long, list that Monica had created for a morning-long judging meeting here in Charlottesville. We were chaired by our executive editor, David Stenhouse, and joined by two special guests who are both fans of Backstory, Chris Jackson, most famous as George Washington in the musical Hamilton, and Margot Lee Shetterly, the author of the best-selling history book, Hidden Figures. Before we sat down, I grabbed a word with them. I'm delighted to be here with Margot Shetterly and Chris Jackson, who I want to thank for serving on our panel of judges. But I have to ask both of you, why did you do this? Are you crazy?
5: <laughs> um, well, I you know, I was really intrigued by this idea of a prize that is dedicated to public history. So often we think of history, we think of history, books, textbooks classrooms. um, But history, public history, you know, history is something that's relevant to all of us. And it's part of our daily lives, even though we we don't necessarily know how it's shaping that. I think pulling the curtain back on history and um, really telling the public, this is something that you need to know. um, I I think that's a, a unique proposition. So I was really excited to participate.
3: Well, we're certainly glad you did it. Chris, why did you get entangled in this?
7: Everywhere you turn, history is living and breathing. And as we shine a light on the moments that have shaped our, our times, it empowers us to, to move through the space and, and, and it defines our relationships in a way that, that creates new history by acknowledging where we've been, the hold that it has on us and how it's shaped and affected us and how we can continue to, to move the conversation forward uh, further our understanding and and change our today, uh, and I think that's that's the times that we're in.
8: So anytime you get to participate in a in in something like this that that further
7: spotlights um, the work that that these
3: folks in the world are doing, I think that it it makes everything better around us. We asked you to make your way through dozens of entries for this prize. Films, museum, exhibitions, websites, plays, books. How'd you do it? What was your strategy?
7: <laughs> I looked for the things that I recognized first that I already. <laughs> You're an <laughs> honest man, Chris. I, I did. Um, and I, I examined why uh, they affected me the way that they did. Uh, and then I took every opportunity to to look into the things that I, I didn't know, much like my experience with Backstory. I'm uh, I, I'm constantly amazed by the number of things that are illuminated that I thought I knew something about and and really didn't. And so that's what's the most interesting to me. That's what I pursue. Um, and as I said earlier, th- this list has given me enough material to last for the next year. <laughs> wow. wow. Well, we'll check back with you soon. Okay.
3: <laughs> There'll be a quiz, by the way.
5: Oh, okay. Margo? I'm sure. Uh, You know, my strategy was similar. There were a number of items on the list that I immediately recognized, uh, but I was really curious about the ones that I didn't, the ones that I hadn't heard about um, that were, you know, on a list that that for some reason had been selected as important public history. So... Um, you know, I'm with Chris. I've got a, a Netflix queue and, um, you know, uh, museums to visit from now until, you know, 2020 or whatever. Uh, and that, that was part of the exciting thing. And I think that's really the, one of the wonderful things about um, about Backstory and about this award is there's a sense of discovery.
3: But it was time for the meeting to begin.
6: I'll just make some introductory remarks. Thank you so much for setting aside the time. To go through this list. This is the first time we've we've done this and I think it's a great way to mark Backstory's 10th anniversary. What has Backstory done so well for the last decade It's made great history available to a broad audience and what's the best way to mark that to, to reward other people who are doing that same thing. So, I hope today we're going to finish up uh, with an agreed winner who will represent the best kind of aspects of that. So something based on real research, solid history, but also reaches a big a big audience. And of course, because we are multidisciplinary, it's going to make chairing this meeting a challenge because we're looking at, you know, how does he compare a podcast or to a book? So what I propose to do is go round the table and to ask you whether you could let me know just in headline form and a few introductory mm-hmm. remarks, what your top three or four or five, you know, would be, the ones that you would be happy for us to walk out of this room
2: uh, with them having one. Ed, do you want to start? with that? Yeah. I would. The three that I uh, propose are uh, the National Monument to Peace and Justice, Mudbound, and Tower. And the rationale I offer for all for those three, other than intrinsic excellence and and civic value, is that they seem to think about form more than some of the others, which are relatively straightforward uh, representations. Thank
3: you. Brian? I agree with Peace and Justice and with uh, Mudbound. And simply because I think it would be odd uh, if we didn't have a podcast um, in the discussion. I have long been a a huge fan of the BBC podcast Witness.
0: Nathan? One of the things that I brought to the exercise was thinking about what an award from backstory might do to increase the visibility of a project that might not be widely discussed and talked about. So as much as you know impact and existing impact was part of our assessment, I also was thinking for what kinds of public history work would an award from backstory actually helped to elevate its stature and bring it to a wider audience. So it was it was actually on that axis alone that I decided not to support for the Equal Justice Initiative Memorial, because I know it's getting a lot of great attention. It's a brilliant project. It's a brilliant installation. I'm happy to have much more specific conversations about it. When I was looking at the um, Durham website, for instance, the Uneven Ground website, you know, as somebody who has worked on websites and the challenges of conveying important information via the web, I was just really impressed at the breadth of the Durham site. I mean, it basically goes from the indigenous period in North Carolina all the way to the present. um, I thought it did a really good job as a kind of user-friendly platform in conveying really thorny issues like tenant activism and landlord exploitation.
3: Joanne.
1: Okay, the few that I picked, I think I was partly picking things that I thought obviously were um, doing history of substance, but also that I felt that they... um, they certainly grabbed me on an emotional level and in that way, kind of a powerful way that that I think gives them a public power as well. And that was where uh, the National Memorial of Peace and Justice came from. Um, Nathan, you totally gave me permission to include Won't You Be My Neighbor, which was actually one of the initial things I was intrigued with. And then I was like, can I put Mr. Rogers on my list? But the thing about that, I watched that on a plane at one of my recent meanderings. And the thing that grabbed me about it, actually, in addition to the fact that, um, and I agree with, with what Nathan said, that it it really shows you the power of public television and it also put Mr. Rogers in a very contemporary mode. You know, it brings him up very close to the present in a way that made his project look different and made the present look different. In a way that I think good public history does. So I I put that there too. And also, as I said, because it, it, you know, I I was one of, I think, many idiots on an airplane crying Mm -hmm. (laughs) at at all of the things that that implied. I have not seen Mudbell, the film. I've heard much about it. The
7: first one on my list was the Vietnam documentary by Ken Burns. I'm 43 now, so. For me it it just I've watched it twice I I, it took me forever to actually get to it Um, and the thing that struck me was you know a conflict that spanned so many years Um, my generation was defined my parents were affected were were living it while they were having my generation Um, and I found that as a kid you know growing up in southern Illinois I, I, I we played war every day it was I was a a I could tell you just about every plane that flew in World War II. Um, We built the models. We played, you know, a soldier in the backyard. As I was struck by the fact that we were playing those war games as, you know, eight, nine, ten-year-olds, as the age of my daughter now, and had no idea that the conflict was so incredibly fresh. Um, I had an uncle who was uh, uh, my my mom's cousin, who was uh, a Green Beret. Uh, and for years, my family spoke about how affected he was, and I always thought he was the best guy in the world, the most fun.
5: I have to say, when I first saw the list, the problem that I had was, what criteria do use? So, for example, is it fair to compare, you know, a small documentary film to a fictional film, one that's not actual history, but represents history? You know, is it, how do you... Like, I, I think that if we separated it out, it might be easier to apply criteria to each mm-hmm. and al- not allow, have people say, well, you know, you had Ken Burns versus the museum versus, like, how the heck do you guys make that yeah. choice? Yeah. I was
0: thinking as we were trying to determine, you know, what makes a Backstory Award a Backstory yeah. Award, right. um, <laughs> and one of them, you know, that we, that we really do, you know, mull over as a group, around every single show and, and and as you know we even think about topics are things that are either or sometimes both topical and evergreen, right? So the thing about the history behind the headlines tagline is, is there something about um, you know the Vietnam War that strikes us as both extraordinarily necessary for thinking about Afghanistan and Iraq and that will be evergreen. Right? Is there something about mudbound that taps into universal evergreen yet At the same time, we need to really revisit the interdependency of the black and white experience right now more than ever. So so I I wonder if there's a way for us to think about the the character of the show as a way to kind of get at and sharpen our own criteria.
2: In that spirit, think about what defines backstory. In some ways, it is the discovery of people and Mm -hmm. stories and perspectives that are not otherwise heard. Um, And if we were making that sort of a criteria, what's in the spirit of the, the 10 years of the work that we've done, it is right. um, surprise. And uh, sort of rubbing against the grain a little bit would
3: be some, sort of one criteria. In the end, after a four-hour, that's four-hour meeting, <laughs> it was the unanimous decision of the Backstory Prize jury that the winner of the first Backstory Prize should be the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in montgomery alabama and you know brian
2: this is so immediately powerful so it's a monument to lynching to the hidden obscured history of men who were taken and illegally hanged from trees and light poles and street lamps all these terrible things right and the monument evokes the horror of that. In a symbolic way. So for every lynching victim, there is a, a heavy stone monolith hanging from the ceiling of the building with the name of the place where it happened inscribed like a tombstone yeah. on it. And then outside of that building, they have the slabs with the same inscriptions laying on the ground awaiting people from those counties to come claim them, to take them back home and to acknowledge their county's complicity in these crimes. You know, the the project began by collecting dirt in jars from all the places where the lynchings had taken place. And so not only were we impressed by the bravery of acknowledging this history, which is deeply researched, which has, you know, years of, you know, historical examination behind it, but also by the vision that America could be better by acknowledging this history. Yeah, it's that
3: interactive nature, Ed, that I was so struck by. It In this digital age, this is a way of taking the concrete, mingling it with our historical memory, and pretty much shouting out to much of America, you need to own this. You need to take responsibility for this. You need to take these Slabs back to your own community to remember them forever.
2: And you can start seeing the impact of this here in Charlottesville, really just a few hundred yards from where we record uh, a lynching from the early 20th century was discovered. uh, And there's an effort here to acknowledge, to memorialize that lynching. So, you know, this is not merely a monument that's in one place that does the work of one place, but radiates out across the country. So it seems that. As much as we admired all the other acts of history this last year, this one emerging in April of 2018 seemed to be sort of a landmark in the ways that we might think about parts of history that we thought could never be memorialized. Now we see that they can. In fact, Ed, a group from Charlottesville
3: visited the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in 2018. While they were there, they heard from Brian Stevenson, the founder and executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative.
8: We're not free in America. We're burdened by a history of racial bigotry and bias, and it's created a kind of smog that's in the air. And it doesn't matter where you live, whether you live in Charlottesville or Montgomery or New York or Los Angeles and Oakland, it's in the air. And we've all been infected and compromised and contaminated by this legacy, this history, of racial inequality, that our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents should have done more, and I'm not blaming anybody, should have done more to deal with. And because of that, we have inherited this legacy. And what's exciting to me about what you're doing is that a year ago, Charlottesville was the site of something ugly and painful, painful. It was the place where that legacy, that history, showed itself in some difficult ways. But what you're doing this week is modeling what every community in America needs to do which is to talk more honestly about what this history has to do. And that's where it begins. We're going to have to talk about some things in this country that we haven't talked about before. We have to talk about the fact that we are a post-genocide society. What happened to Native people when Europeans came to this continent was a genocide. We slaughtered millions of Native people. Half the states in America are Native words. We don't ever talk about that. Native words. But we made the people leave And we killed them by the millions. But we didn't call it genocide. We said, no, those native people, they're savages. We came up with this narrative of racial difference to justify the violence that we perpetrated on those folks. And we didn't even feel bad about what we did. And that narrative of racial difference was cooked into the very culture, the economy, the social systems, the political systems that formed our nation. And we, from the very beginning, got indifferent to what racial bigotry can do to other people. And it was that narrative of racial difference that I believe made us comfortable with two and a half centuries of slavery. Mm. And I really don't think the great evil of American slavery was involuntary servitude and forced labor. I'm persuaded that the true evil of American slavery was the narrative of racial difference that we perpetuated. It was the ideology of white supremacy. We created this idea that somehow black people aren't like other people. They're not fully human. The court said that they're three-fifths human. We said the black people can't do this. They're not involved. They can't do that. They can't do this. And that ideology, that narrative of racial difference, that was the true evil of American slavery. If you read the 13th Amendment, it talks about ending involuntary servitude, ending forced labor, but it doesn't say anything about ending this narrative of racial difference, this ideology of white supremacy. And because of that, I don't think slavery ended in 1865. I don't know. I think it just evolved. It turned into decades where we had lynchings and violence and terrorism. That's how this man in Charlottesville could be pulled from a train and hanged and then brutalized and shot, and no one was ever held accountable. It had to do with this reign of terror that we were tolerating in this country. And we haven't talked about what that did to us.
2: That was Brian Stevenson, founder of the Equal Justice Initiative and creator of the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, winner of the first annual Backstory Prize.
3: that's going to do it for us today. If you're interested in looking at the long list for the Backstory Prize, it's on our website, backstoryradio.org. And you can keep the conversation going online by sending an email to Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a
2: stranger. Funding from the W.K. Kellogg Foundation is helping Virginia Humanities and Backstory change the narrative of race and representation.
0: Backstory is produced at Virginia Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Johns Hopkins University. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund,
6: cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia Humanities.